This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Don't Look Back, Getting Unstuck and Moving Forward with Passion and Purpose, written and narrated by Christine Kane, with an audiobook exclusive track from Christine, available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hello, this is the Russell Moore Podcast, and this is your host, Russell Moore. And we are uh, here on the podcast, uh, continuing our first word uh, study through the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis, seeking there the kingdom of Christ. Before we get started, let me remind you, it helps a lot. If you like this podcast, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever uh, you listen, because it helps people to find us. Now, I've been thinking today a lot about the tradition of my fellow Mississippians ending up in New York City. Uh, Willie Morris, uh, for example, is is one of the, the, the most famous of these who lived in the Mississippi Delta and uh, ended up as editor at Harper's Magazine, was in New York. Uh, I remember uh, the first time that I ever went to New York City. I was 19 years old. Uh, working in Washington, I was on staff with a United States congressman there, and uh, we were all Mississippians. And there was a big, um, what did they call it, way up north in Mississippi picnic in Central Park, uh, where Mississippians were just gathered from all over the place. And I remember the sense of awe standing on the streets in in New York, just just looking upward, having seen, of course, uh, the the skyline of New York City all of my life in movies and on television and and having imaginatively been there uh, through reading and just uh, thinking about all of those uh, Mississippians who ended up in this huge bustling place uh, for the first time. There's a tradition of that. There's also a tradition, though, of Mississippians uh, who, like me, uh, end up in Tennessee. And I was at a place that was similarly uh, awe-inspiring, but in a different way, at one of those Mississippians, uh, Elvis Presley at uh, Graceland, uh, not um, uh, several years ago, was speaking in Memphis and uh, went to Graceland realizing I'd never been there before. And uh, walking through and seeing the, the grave, and if I remember right, I know that this uh, that this uh, saying showed up everywhere. I I want to say it was even on the grave, unless that's my imagination playing tricks on me. But the saying is uh, TCB lightning with a lightning symbol, lightning speed, which means uh, taking care of business, lightning speed, which uh, apparently came from Elvis had an affinity for Captain Marvel Jr. with the you know the Shazam lightning. Uh, on his uh, chest, and and this was sort of uh, an acknowledgement of that. But I remember thinking as I stood there and looked at this grave, how out of kilter that sort of line seemed to be, taking care of business, lightning speed, uh, when there's a grave and there's death. And realizing that looking around, uh, even though all of this is preserved, uh, in many cases preserved exactly the way that it was when Elvis was there, that it couldn't make him any more alive. 
And that ultimately, just as standing in New York and looking around at the monuments to all sorts of people who built that city, most of whom we don't remember, and eventually all of whom we will eventually forget, that these these monuments aren't as permanent as they seem. But the monuments tend to give us the illusion of permanence. And that's something that human beings have been looking for uh, forever. I mean, today, I want us to look in Genesis 10 on through uh, chapter 11. Now, this is after the flood, uh, after the what's called the table of nations, the, the distribution of that line of Noah uh, out into the nations. And then we come to this incident of what's called the Tower of Babel. Now, this marks a transition point in the book of Genesis uh, between what some people would call primeval history uh, then into the story of Abraham. It's not what some people would argue you're moving from something that's untrue to something that's true. Genesis 1 through 11 is speaking truthfully. Uh, but Genesis 1 through 11 is much more mysterious to us, seems uh, more disconnected to us. We feel much more at home in the world of Abraham, even though uh, that that ancient Near Eastern uh, world of Abraham is very distant from us in terms of culture and technology. But uh, these early chapters are meant to be shrouded in a kind of mystery. God doesn't answer all the questions that we would have about those. In the same way that when we come into the rest of the Bible, those events that are in the future from us are shrouded in mystery. Jesus uh, speaks to us and the Spirit speaks to us truthfully about those things. So we know that, uh, for instance, Jesus is going to show up catastrophically, visibly, bodily, in time and in space. We know that he's going to raise the dead bodily. We know that he's going to call a halt to the present trajectory of history. Uh, But there are a lot of things that we speculate about and we wonder, well, how uh, how does does this passage in Revelation or this passage in 2 Thessalonians, how is that actually going to play out? And we know some things and then some things we do not. And so Jesus even says to us, that's intentional. God God means that intentionally, so that if you have people saying to you, well, the Christ is over there, the Christ is over there, you know that's not true because this will be an event that you will see as the lightning comes from the east, so will the sign of the Son of Man be in the skies. You know that, so you can know what's not true uh, about this, but it's still a lot of questions that we would love to know. Well, the same thing's true with your life. There are, uh, if you think about the most mysterious aspects of your life, that would have to be your birth and your death. Uh, There are certain things you know about your death. You know you're going to die unless Jesus returns or unless there's some sort of Elijah in the whirlwind sort of incident. It's 100% certain that you're going to die, but you don't know how you're going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. Uh, even, you know, maybe there's somebody here who says, well, I know when I'm going to die because I've got a doctor's diagnosis that says I'm going to die in six months. Well, you could be healed or you could be hit by a bus. <laughs> so you don't have complete certainty about that. You don't know what the experience of dying is like, but you know that you're 
mortal, you're not invulnerable, and you're going to eventually at some point die. In the same way, you know that you're alive, so you know that you were born. You know things that people have told you maybe who were there. Maybe your mom has told you about your being born. Maybe there's a video of it that you've seen. Uh, ah, I hope not. That's that's. I think that would be disturbing to watch a video of, of one being born. But you know, uh, some people do. Uh, you you know those things. Maybe you've seen a birth certificate, but you don't have a personal memory of that in the way that you have um, of your, say, your high school, uh, your year as a high school senior. You know, so there's a there's a certain degree of knowledge that you have, and it's shrouded in mystery. And the same thing is true in terms of human history. We, we don't have all the answers to things that we would, would want to know, but God has said to us, what I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking truthfully. It's what you need to know. The secret things belong to the Lord your God, but the revealed things belong to you and to your children forever. And so this comes to the end of that first section in Genesis, uh, which is dealing with sort of the bigger picture of humanity and of uh, world history before we move into that smaller uh, picture of Abraham and the line of Abraham and the the line of of Israel. And it comes down to that that we were just uh, mentioning, that that desire to uh, have a, a sense of permanence, a sense of glory, a sense of protection here in what is known as the Tower of Babel. Now, what you have is a, uh, a group of people who are coming together and seeking to construct something. So if you think about, for instance, the pyramids, uh, we have uh, pyramids uh, in Egypt and uh, Mayan temples in uh, Latin America that are pointing to the, the desires of people to, uh, in some cases, protect themselves from death in some cases, to sort of tap into the spiritual world, in some cases, to build something for their own renown, and in some cases, a combination of all of those things. Uh, And in some cases, we don't know. There's a lot of speculation as to what exactly Stonehenge, uh, for instance, is about. But uh, most of the speculation would say there was some sense at Stonehenge of connecting with uh, the spirit world in in some way that there was some degree of of worship that is happening uh, at Stonehenge. Well, a similar thing is happening here at the Tower of Babel. You have the people here who are unified together in this uh, technological problem, and that unity is a problem. Now, why? Because. God initially created humanity to be unified. It's from one blood, one man, one uh, family, one bloodline, one uh, one uh, organism uh, there. But the unity now is a problem. In the same way that God created humanity to have life, and that life is good, but the life becomes a problem when the life is disconnected from the life of God. Uh, and that's why God exiles the man and the woman from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Unity uh, can is good when it is unity in the spirit, unity in the bond of peace. But unity can be evil when unity is is disconnected from that. 
I, I was just um, reading this week, Alan Jacobs in his book, How to Think, uh, talks about C.S. Lewis's idea of the inner ring, where Lewis, talk, he talks about this in, uh, in The Weight of Glory, that collection of, of essays, where he says there's a temptation that really comes to everybody to want to be in the inner ring, sort of to be in uh, the group that matters. And for some people that manifests itself in terms of achieving, being in the inner ring in their, in their business or their corporation. Some people uh, want to get that through kind of being in the, in the middle of gossip. You know, there's a, a lot of a sense of uh, almost conspiracy that comes together when people get together and start sharing gossip. It's, it's really about belonging and about forming that, uh, that inner ring. Uh, and it's about finding a kind of safety, you know, uh, and, and this can manifest itself in some really evil uh, sorts of ways. I uh, can think of, as I'm sitting here right now, two times in my life where someone has explicitly tried to intimidate me by saying, I'm going to need you to say that you uh, believe something that you don't believe. Two, two times. I'm sure maybe it's happened more, but I, I can think of it in, in two times for sure that that has happened. Uh, but that's explicitly. It happens to everybody, though, implicitly all the time, where the message is sort of merge into the crowd, merge into the collective, and you will belong and you will find safety. Uh, there's. Uh, I was just reading this renowned uh, psychologist from the 20th century who was uh, talking about Jesus uh, when he says, to what will I liken this generation? You're like children who will say, we played the lyre for you and we, we, you, you did not, uh, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We played the lyre for you and you did not mourn. Uh, in other words, you didn't become part of the crowd and at the direction of the crowd. That's the temptation for every single person. So there's a unity here that's a unity of mission. They're doing the same thing. They're building the, the tower. There's a unity of language. They, they have a common language, and so they're able to then act. Well, this, of course, is rooted in what Genesis has already uh, shown us, that human beings image God, and God brings reality out of words. God said, let there be light, and there is light. That's the way that things are intended to function, and commonality and unity requires a sort of common language or, or common way of communicating. So Wendell Berry uh, talks about, for instance, in his Standing by Words, we assume that language is communal and that its purpose is to tell the truth. So having a private language would not be useful. Now, as I say that, I realize um, just putting the words private and language together that I'm going to have some listeners who are more in the charismatic or Pentecostal sorts of movements. And some of those, some of you, would have what's called a private prayer language of uh, speaking in tongues. We don't need to get into, uh, you know, the, the theological back and forth of that. But let me just say, that itself is not even a private language. Let's just 
let's just not argue about it. And it's just assume if God has given a private prayer language, even if you're the only person uh, where that's manifesting. And again, I'm not saying that's what 1 Corinthians is teaching, but suppose it is. That's still not private because this is somebody who is communicating supposedly by the Spirit to God. So this is a this is communal uh, there. Having an individual language defeats the purpose of language because language is meant to uh, is meant to be a sign between uh, multiple groups of people, and its purpose is to is to tell the truth. Language is used as we've already seen in Genesis in devilish ways to destroy the truth. But there has to be an assumption that it is meant to point to reality and that it is communal. And that that can build uh, all sorts of um, shortcuts in terms of the ways that we uh, function together, not just in terms of language, the way that we think about English versus French versus Spanish versus Portuguese, Uh, but even just in terms of those shorthand ways that we use uh, language. A lot of times you're going to be in a room with with, uh, people who are in a field that you're not familiar with or in a maybe a workplace that you're not familiar with, and they have all of these acronyms and uh, and all of these these, uh, contractions for things that you don't know what they're talking about. I was with somebody... It was so rare that I'm around somebody who grew up, uh, even in my own church community, there are very few people who grew up in the same sort of denominationally ordered uh, and programmed church that I grew up in. And so I was talking to somebody, actually to a whole group of people, uh, when I was at the Anglican Church in North America. Uh, national gathering speaking there uh, last year. And I was just encountering all kinds of people who grew up in Baptist churches and Baptist churches in my particular denominational tradition. They weren't mad. Uh, they they uh, became something else uh, later on in their life, but they had affection for where they had uh, come from. And a lot of them wanted to come up and talk. And what I found is that it was almost um, therapeutic uh, for them and for me to be talking in all of these sorts of shorthand ways that would be incomprehensible to somebody who didn't know what you're talking about. When you're talking about uh, training union and RAs, which is in a university context would probably be uh, resident assistants in a dormitory, but in our country's royal ambassadors, sort of the... Southern Baptist uh, uh, Cub Scouts uh, to learn missions and, you know, WMU and HMB and FMB and CLC, which is now the ERLC, all these sorts of, uh, all these sorts of abbreviations that are common. We know what we're talking about when we use them, but if you don't know all of that, then you're just sort of lost. And the same thing is true even when we use the same words. Sometimes in different cultural contexts, they can have different sorts of meanings. I I had a, my college roommate was a great guy, uh, is a great guy, but he was from uh, Belmont, Massachusetts. 
and uh, came to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, to my university because of a, uh, he wanted to study in a particular program that was there. But one of the things he had to learn was how language was being used. So uh, when, for instance, uh, he invited a young woman to go to ice cream, and she said, oh, I probably shouldn't go because I need to lose weight. He just took that as at face value and moved on. And I had to explain later, no, 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 no. You, you didn't just leave, did you? What she wanted you to do was to then say, oh, you look great. And he said, well, why would she do that? I said, well, because we're Mississippians. <laughs> and uh, we, we sort of have a little code of how we how we talk in terms of our, our politeness and our uh, a little bit more passive in terms of the way that we, we do things. And she's just asking for some reassurance uh, from you. This is just the way people talk. Well, you wouldn't know that unless you were part of that cultural ecosystem. But if you are, it helps people to read and to know and to understand how to relate to other people for good or for ill. In this case, you've got a common uh, language. You have a common culture because what the people are doing is building, they're, they're, they're uh, constructing, they're, they're utilizing technology. Again, that's a good thing. God has said, I want you to cultivate the ground and to take dominion over it. We're going to see later on uh, in the book of Exodus that the spirit is going to be given to enable people to construct the tabernacle and to construct the, the temple and to, and to decorate it. Uh, but they're, they're doing this in terms of constructing this building that is going to reach into the heavens. Now, uh, I think some, sometimes people read this and what they think is, well, you have people who assume that right over the clouds is, um, is heaven and we're just going to build tall enough that we'll get to the clouds and we'll we'll communicate with God. And I, you know, it's easy to see why you would uh, think that because uh, there is a tendency uh, to have a really flat and hyper literal uh, sort of uh, understanding of what the universe is like, uh, not just in terms of previous ancient civilizations, but even in all of our lives as we're growing older. I, I remember being a child and being told that church is the house of God and assuming that means that God is physically present there. And the only way that I could figure out where that could be was in the the speaker boxes uh, for the amplification of the microphones that would be up on the walls. I said, well, maybe Jesus is in there. Uh, And then it would become really confusing when they would say, Jesus has been uh, asked into your heart. Well, where is he? You know, that, that's, that's, that's natural. But I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Because it's not just that the human civilizations think that they can uh, reach to the heavens. It's that God thinks this too. And I think that what is happening here is not uh, so much the height of the building as the fact that they are building what would be very common in the ancient world, uh, a kind of tower that would be almost a a stargate, a a place to meet with the divine and a place to sort of channel the power of the spirit world. We we see that 
in all sorts of different religions all over the world right now. Uh, Again, going back to Stonehenge might be something like that that was taking place there. But they're they're wanting to build this uh, meeting place between the divine and the human. And they're in so doing, they're using language uh, that, that is echoing God himself. Let us build a tower. So this is the same kind of language that Genesis is using uh, earlier. For God, let us make man in our own image. So there's the creativity involved here. And just as God has created humanity out of the mud, they're creating bricks out of the mud. Uh, just as God through humanity is subduing the earth, they're, they're making something out of the earth and they're trying to construct this uh, temple, I think, is the, is the right language that you could use for this. It's a, it's a kind of temple. And in so doing, what are they wanting to do? They're seeking glory. Let us make a name for ourselves. They're wanting glory. Uh, You can see this showing up, for instance, in Ephesians. Uh, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts about Ephesus, where you have uh, the Apostle Paul. The apostles are are carrying uh, the Great Commission out. Paul is taking the gospel into Ephesus. And one of the first things that takes place is there's a disturbance because there is a, a temple of Artemis, pagan goddess, there in Ephesus. And if people are not worshiping her, it's going to bring about a loss of renown for Ephesus. They, they are uh, the envy of the world because of this magnificent temple. It's about them and their renown and their glory. That's part of what's going on here is a sense of we want to receive glory. We want to receive uh, fame is is maybe a word that could be used here. Uh, Envy of others is maybe an idea that's being communicated here. But glory and security so that we will not be scattered. So there's something here. It's not just about, well, look at the magnificence of this building but it's also about the security. Something about what we're doing here is going to protect us from being scattered. Now, again, that's why I'm using that language of uh, temple, because you're going to see both of these uh, both of these aspects showing up in some of the wrongful uses of uh, even the temple of God later on. So Jeremiah, for instance, think of Jeremiah chapter 7, where he says, God is going to bring judgment, but uh, people keep saying, well, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What they want to say is, we are not like the exiles who have been carted off from here because we're part of the temple of the Lord. We're we're on the victorious side of all of this. And uh, nothing's going to happen to us because God is with us within his temple. And Jeremiah or God speaking through Jeremiah has to say, remember Shiloh and what's there now? Nothing. Judgment can still come upon you. Or when you move into the New Testament, Jesus uh, says to his disciples, when they're looking at the temple constructed there by Herod, and they say, look at these magnificent stones. So there's a sense of, of pride, almost nationalistic pride in this uh, temple. And Jesus says, 
there's not one stone that's going to be left standing on another here. So this is happening, but it's happening uh, outside of God's purposes here for glory and for security, those motivations that are going to show up uh, repeatedly throughout the Bible. So think of, for instance, Psalm 90, uh, where uh, God says, I will give my angels charge over you, over you, God's anointed, so that you will not even dash your foot upon a stone. Well, that's the word of God, and that's truthful. But what does Satan do? Quotes that passage of uh, Psalm 90 to say, grasp at glory and grasp at protection and vindication and throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple. So in the one case, it's the building up of the pinnacle. In the other case, it's the jumping off of the pinnacle, but they're both doing the same thing. And God sees this and says, if this happens, then nothing that they propose uh, will be kept from happening. So this is echoing again what happened with the tree of life, where God says, if they eat of the tree of life, they will become like us and they will, they will be left in this situation. And so just as with the exile from Eden, God's intervention here is actually not just an act of judgment, but in the long run, an act of grace. Uh, in the same way, I was having a conversation uh, this week with somebody about unanswered uh, prayers uh, that had happened in, in the person's life. And somebody was talking about, um, well, it was somebody that had, had really ministered to me at a key point in my life through his writing ministry but uh, he wasn't initially a writer. And he says the reason that he started writing was because he failed as a missionary to Brazil because he couldn't learn Portuguese uh, well enough to communicate. And so he, he failed and kept praying for God. God, would you help me to learn Portuguese? And would you help me to be able to, uh, to be a success here? And he never was. So he started writing. And it was over time that he realized he had a gift there. And I said, I'm glad your prayers weren't answered in terms of learning Portuguese, because your, your writing ministry has been such a blessing. Um, there are all sorts of things in our lives where we can see that we want something and God's grace to us is in frustrating that that we want, keeping us from getting that uh, that we want. And God does this here. He not only doesn't give them what they want, this tower, He gives them the very thing that they're afraid of, which is scattering them. He he scatters them, and the way that he scatters them is with a confusion of their language. And why? Well, long-term, in terms of the biblical storyline, we can see. It's because God is going to grant to them, or is going to grant to humanity, to those who are in Christ, glory and security and a place to meet with the divine. But that happens at a place where God chooses, not because human beings have succeeded their way toward channeling God. Instead, it is God meeting with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, for instance, if I be lifted up, then I will draw all people to myself. So you have that exaltation 
that that lifting up, that glory, and the unity, the drawing in all people who have been scattered abroad to myself. How does that happen? It happens not through superior technology and superior creativity. It happens through a Roman cross, through crucifixion. That's how this takes place. And the unity that God achieves, including the unity as it, uh, as it deals with language, is something that when Jesus is raised from the dead, he says, wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is, is not that people are building their way up to find the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit comes down as tongues of fire and the people are speaking there in Jerusalem at Pentecost in a way where they are able to each hear in their own language, which means there is the ability to have a kind of unity and a gathering together. That's what God is going to do. And God is going to give a name you know, that, that desire to let's have a name and let's protect the, the name, that's not in and of itself a bad desire. It's just that you can't get it that way. Uh, the, the way that you get it is not by grasping your name, Philippians 2, and protecting your name. It's by pouring yourself out uh, to the point of anonymity, to the point of uh, repulsion even, the death on a cross. Therefore, God has given to him a name that is above all names and has constructed a place for us in the New Jerusalem that is not built with human hands, foundation stones named after the 12 apostles, not built by human hands. And the sort of self-preservation that we want we, we only can get it by losing it. The one who loves his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life will save it. So what we see here at the, you know, in these early myths of human history is this understanding that humanity can build itself up and become divine. And that is not the way. You know, it's, I'm working a lot these days in technology and working a lot with artificial intelligence and those sorts of uh, questions. And uh, one of the kind of scientific fads that, that comes through is this idea of transhumanism, uh, which is the idea that eventually uh, human beings are going to be replaced by something else, by superior technology, and we can merge with machines in a way that can make us almost limitless. So there's a, a futurist technological entrepreneur, Ray Kurzweil, who in this uh, documentary that was done about him, it was really chilling because he was talking about transcending death and transcending humanity and transcending limits on knowledge and all of those things, essentially becoming a computer program. And he says at the end, talking about his atheism, he said, people will ask me all the time, do you believe that there's a God? And my answer is not yet. Okay, well, that's the spirit of Babel. The understanding that I can build myself up toward the divine, and that is not the way that God has revealed. Instead, uh, what we ultimately have to realize is that all of the things that we build, no matter how impressive, 
in our lives. They're just dirt. And all of us eventually are dirt. But God has provided a place for us to meet with him in the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus Christ. He has given to us a permanent name and glory there. He has given to us protection from anything that would harm us there. He has given to us more than we could ask or even think there. Not in our tower building, not in our temple building, not in our creativity and technology, but in the crucified glory of Jesus Christ. And that is a monument that's more than a monument. That's a name that's more than a name. That's a tower that's worth being part of. That's taking care of business. Lightning speed. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't yet, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Casts or wherever you listen. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art and you'll find show notes, including some details that you might have missed. And we'll pick up back here in Genesis next time with another first word. This is Russell Moore. Onward.